This is the Ag Queen Podcast. This podcast explores the agriculture industry with the movers and shakers of those shaping it. Here's your host, Lori Boyer. Today, I am talking with Hayes Goosey. He is an assistant professor and extension forage specialist with Montana State University. Hayes, tell us a bit more about you and your role there at Montana State University. Sure. So my appointment is about half extension, uh, which is off-campus education. And so I'm the only extension specialist with forages in Montana. So my goal is I work in with county agents. We have a, a whole host of agents in counties across the state, and I work in with them to put on educational programs in their counties and in their regions and based on forage and forage production. When I say forages, we're talking hay crops uh, that are either cut and baled or grazed or somehow are, are, are utilized in the uh, livestock industry. I also teach a class here on campus, which is forages. So it's an egg science class. 342 is the number, and that's mostly junior and senior level students. And then we cover everything that, that I can put into the forage production, everything from soils, soil fertility, weeds, pest management, insects, different species of forages that they can use native and introduced species, and then how those fit agronomically into farm and ranch operations and rangeland operations too. And then I also have a research appointment too, which is covered everything that we can, we can kind of get set up in terms of research and as it applies, it's a huge field. So I have to kind of pick and choose what I can get involved with just because there's one of me and there's too many topics <laughs> for me to research entirely. But I spend a time just in general forage production, soils, soil health, pest managements. Big interest of mine is soil organic matter, which is from the terms of water holding capacities. And a lot of, in Montana, about 60% hay ground of, of grazing grounds are dry land hay ground. So rain fed, so it's non-irrigated. So the more organic matter we can have in that soil, the better the water holding capacity, which means the more productive those fields. And then how we get that there through cropping systems, there's little critters called dung beetles that are good at moving manure below the soil surface. Manure is a large portion organic matter. So kind of a one size fits all approach to try to get some research on the ground that hopefully gets used out in the state. Thank you, Hayes, and you gave us plenty to talk about here today. So maybe we start with some of the basics and build up from there based on what you just said. So if we are looking at evaluating and determining how a field looks or how healthy the forage looks, where do we begin? Typically, the first thing I'll ask about producers or the agents when they contact me for some advice is uh, soil tests. That's one of the basis of what we use for productivity. So if it's a mainly a legume crop, we're looking at phosphorus and potassium. If it's a grass crop, mainly nitrogen. But a lot of forage fields in Montana are a mix between legumes and grasses. So we look at all of those um, as they're combined. But that kind of is the basis of getting the field set up. We can also look at pH, the salts just general soil health to see if there's something that is counterproductive. Usually when I'm contacted, they're having a problem with a field or they're looking to reseed a field and they want to get things set up right. And soils is kind of the basis that we we look at. Crop history, 
what's been there, what's been cropped in the past. And then a lot of times we'll try to rotate out of a particular production scenario. Pests often arise associated with long-term recropping or similar crops. So we'll try to rotate out. If it's mainly an alfalfa stand, we'll rotate into a grass that opens up different herbicides you can use, try to manage that. Look at pests, you know, a lot of the soil-borne pests. So rotating away will clear up a lot of the, the nematodes and other issues in the soils. So we take it from that perspective. I ask them a lot of questions about what the field is, how it's been producing. Are they happy with that? What are the changes? What are their long-term goals? And then we try to set up just a management plan, either reseeding or current management plan to try to adjust where they're at and make those fields more productive in the coming years. Hayes, what is your recommendation on how to do the forage testing? So I recommend that folks buy soil course, just the stomp, the foot probe, where you can stomp them into the ground. But most of our county extension offices also have a probe. So folks can go in and borrow that, but they're cheap. You know, they're $150. And in one year, just in, in fertilizer costs, the savings associated just one year, you can easily, I mean, very quickly pay for well, not just, but multiple <laughs> soil probes. They're a very good tool to have. So I recommend those. They're typically you can get down to 12 inches with those, that top 12 inches of the soil. Ideally, you want to get down even deeper, but for most of your fertilizer applications, we can deal with top 12 inch and go from there. How we go about that is just recommending a, a sampling pattern, which is basically a W pattern in the field, start on a field edge and then walk to the other field edge while taking several soil cores and then back to the other edge and back and forth, zigzagging across the field. So you'd, in your mind, you would have a W pattern out there. And depending on the size of the field, but you want to take quite a few soil samples because soil types and soil nutrients vary substantially across the field. So you can get an idea of that, and then we can make a recommendation based on that. There's also some more technological advanced, more mapping programs that we have out there. They're not real prominent right now, but that's a future. So you can actually fertilize, instead of fertilizing an entire field based on the mean readings, you can actually adjust fertilizer rates based on what portion of your field you're at. And that's in the future is going to, I think, come in to saving, being a quite a bit of a cost savings. How often does the testing need to be done? I recommend, so, uh, well, so step back. So we got two types of crops. There's perennials and annuals. So if, if you're seeding an annual, a lot of times they'll rotate out of perennials here in Montana, perennial alfalfa grass mix, and we'll rotate to like a spring barley or a winter, uh, winter, winter wheat or winter triticale. So in those situations, you want to sample uh, as close to seeding as possible. So that way you can have a pretty accurate fertilizer recommendation. So that would be every year. Now with the perennial fields, you definitely want to sample before you seed so you can get fertilizer put down to amend any of the necessary nutrients. P and K are not mobile or very immobile in the soil. So we typically put on quite a few years worth of P and K into the soils because it doesn't leach. Nitrogen on the other hand is very mobile. So we're a little more uh, conservative on how we apply nitrogen. We just don't want that to disappear out of the root zones with, with a high fall or high winter year where we've got a lot of leaching uh, with that. So perennials, at least when you're starting to seed those, 
But then as if you're having problems with the field, if, if it's producing well, you got good stands and it's healthy, there's really no need to do that unless you like to look at soils and soil results and then, you know, take soils and send those off to any particular, there's a lot of qualified soil labs around. And so whatever's closest in your area, uh, get those. But if the field's producing, there's probably no need to do that. But as soon as you start to see issues associated with that field, then it's time to soil sample. A yearly soil sample could even head off potential issues if you caught those declines before they became limiting to the plant, then that's something you could you could fertilize ahead of time. So it kind of depends on, on the scenario itself and the situation, but at least yearly for the annuals and uh, at least yearly for the perennials if you can, but at least when you start to see problems, if you start to see reductions in yields, a lot of times that's a soil soil nutrient related issue. Hayes, you also mentioned plant species. So what is the best way to select species? Well, it kind of depends on on you know when they need forages, when what the class of animal they're after. Are they looking at higher quality? Is it you know dairy? We don't have a whole lot of dairies in Montana. We used to have more, but there, there's not as many. But if, if you're looking for a dairy quality hay, then there's a particular species and timings. Now, the biggest impact you've got on forage quality is the time that you cut. Earlier, the more immature forages that you cut, the higher the quality, but also the reduced yield associated with that. So for Montana, we're, we're looking at trying to mostly cow-calf uh, ULM operations. And so they're looking for tonnage. Depending on the year, two to four months, uh, you need two to four months of harvested hay or available hay for winter for to keep the livestock alive with that. So in that situation, we're looking at those cultivars or those species that yield well. And so in the annuals, Montana and uh, dryland production, our winter annuals typically produce better. They just fit the precipitation pattern. So uh, a winter wheat or a winter triticale will yield better than a spring wheat or a spring triticale or a spring barley that's seeded as a, as a forage. But that doesn't always pan out in that, in that regard. So bar, barleys actually do quite well. They yield well, a little higher quality. So depending on that class of livestock that you've got. For the perennials, mostly alfalfa, you know, is obviously the, you know, the big legume that's out there. We've got quite a bit of interest in a crop called sanfoin. One of its advantages is that it's non-bloating like alfalfa when it's grazed green. So a lot of our producers are at is trying to find ways to cut input costs associated with forage production. And one of those is that we're working on to some degree and people are exploring is how to get the animal to harvest the forage itself. So that cuts out the need for expensive equipment, maintenance on that equipment, depreciations, loan payments, and how do we do that or even transportation costs. Hayes, can you speak to the topic of nitrogen cycling? We're obviously aware of that. And so depending on crops that are grown, like I say, grasses are more in need of nitrogen. And so we're, and nitrogen leaches, it's very mobile in the soil. So we, we try not to have too much. You want to have enough to grow the crop, but excessive amounts you lose in the, in the soil itself, you'll lose to leaching. And we have in Montana, we have 
and a lot in southern states do, but Montana, we have a issue called nitrate toxicity in annual forages, barleys, wheats, triticales, where nitrogen nitrate builds up in the plant itself, and that's actually toxic in the animal. So excessive nitrogen is one of the leading causes associated with nitrate toxicity. We're very cognizant of how that you know, nitrogen levels in the soil. And then also the credits that you can get from crops like alfalfa or levels of organic matter in the soil. Organic matter is constantly turned over, uh, mineralized it's called, to plant available nitrogen. So you can have, so building up organic matter is actually really good because it increases water holding capacities, but it's also nature's freer source of nitrogen rather than urea or a, you know, an anhydrous type application. So, and you get all that information for, you know, per field with the hours of your time and the $25, $30 soil sample, you get all these great informations on nit nitrogen and its availability and the potentials for turnover within the soil itself. Hayes, is there anything else you want to mention when it comes to soil fertility or cropping systems before we talk about research that you're doing in this area? No, it's kind of the standard stuff that we go. We're, we're just trying to get tonnage put up and, and like I say, I'm kind of the dirt, the bug, and the plant guy. So, <laughs> <laughs> You should probably have that on your business card. Well, I wrote down organic matter, and that is something that is being talked about more and more, especially with regard to soil health. So let's talk more about organic matter and what you're doing with your research in this area. Sure. So it's soil organic matter. There's also a portion of that is soil organic carbon, and there's the carbon markets that are emerging out there. So I'm in it for the organic matter, which um, if you increase organic matter, you're increasing uh, organic carbon in the soils too. But the organic matter um, and, and the cropping system. So perennial cropping systems are substantially better at building organic matter than annual systems, which typically are either kind of a steady state. In other words, you're not really increasing or decreasing. Or if you incorporate a lot of soil disturbance in that annual system, like tillage or anything that adds oxygen into that soil, you get mineralization of that. And so your, your organic matters will actually decrease. So cropping systems that can look at things like soil pH, soil organic matter, that also build up on water holding capacities of soils. So we look at annuals versus perennials and different species and then different cropping systems within that. We also look at nitrogen. I have a graduate student working on nitrate toxicity and, and the availability of sulfur within the soils itself and how that influences plant physiology. In other words, to process nitrate out of the plant so it's not toxic, but then also the soil impacts associated with that. In general, a cropping system, well, your first big division is, are you in an annual cropping system or a perennial? So annual would be parts of Montana are very well known for wheat production. And so annual system is that they seed wheat upon wheat upon wheat. So or if you're in a perennial system where it's crops that you don't seed necessarily every year. And that's a, a, a big split in the system itself and how, you how that land is, is managed, ultimately managed within that. The costs associated with, with annual crops are higher just because you have to buy seed every year. You have inputs of diesel and fertilizer and field prep every year. So from the, the forage production side, 
a good producing stand of perennial crops that will last five to 10 years is economically a, a better, more feasible choice than continued recropping every year. And that's not to say that annual, annual crops don't have their place in forage production. They, they certainly do, but we use those as a renovation tool for a field that ultimately we're gonna get back into a perennial cropping system just based on that for weed management, pest management, soils, that perspective. Hey, Zude also mentioned earlier the value of dung beetles. So I'm curious to find out more about what you're learning about dung beetles. Sure. So everything, so everybody knows the, the you know, the drawbacks of insects, just a lot of times they're pests for, of any type of crop production. So we've got a whole host of pests that are damaging to crops themselves. But we've got a whole host of insects and arthropods in general that are beneficial. Their benefits probably go a little more unnoticed than the, the damaging side, the pest side of that. The dung beetle is one of those, I always call them the free farm workers because their job is to process manure. And there's different species. There's three different types of these. There's those that actually live in the dung pat there's those that tunnel below the dung pat and bring manure with it into the soil. And then there's another that are called rollers, which carve off a ball of manure and they'll roll that away and then bury that underground. And it's all used as a resource for reproduction. It's the waste of the animal, but it's actually very high in nutrients and moisture. And there's a lot of species that are obligates, meaning they, they used dung as part of their reproduction. And then there's even more species that are, they're not an obligate, but they use it as a food source or a water source of those. So the benefits of the dung beetle itself is how it moves manure below the soil surface. And what goes with that is a lot of N, P, and K that's in the manure itself, sulfur, organic matter. And you also reduce pat smother on the fields and on the range. Pat smother being a product or a manure pat that sits, grasses don't grow, and then there's work out there that livestock will stay, I think it's eight to 12 inches. I mean, it's, you know, it's a distance away from, so you lose a fairly good chunk of grazing ground that has a manure pat on that. And so enough of those on the range and your AUMs actually drop. So what dung beetles do is they'll take a pat that would sit maybe for three years, two and a half, three years, and that processing time will be reduced to a year and a half to the point where then that becomes a growing part of that pasture again. Some of the drawbacks, or not the drawbacks of the beetles, but where we see their production reduced as much as we do is through uh, anthelmintic use, dewormers. They're a very valuable part of production, but where we're at right now in Montana is trying to classify what species are here and trying to look at how we can have augment by times of year that internal wormers are used. They're used in the winter, northern climates like Montana, beetles aren't active in the winter. So if we can worm then that is processed and out of the animal by the time the springtime when beetles become active, then pats that are deposited up on the range and in the pastures are not a toxic source for those insects and they can do their job and help to process that manure. So I've got a background in entomology and so I always enjoy this and it's a real valuable part of that. And as I started to talk about this, people 
they know about it. They want to know more about it. They want to know how to, how to augment these populations. It was very welcoming for me to hear a lot of the, how, how much people knew more about this than I did, so which was good. <laughs> that is so interesting and so amazing. So thanks for sharing that information, Hayes. What else would you like to mention here today? So a lot of it then is fertilizer based. So, um, and those are just based on how we can, with high fertilizer prices, everything, some of the instabilities in the fertilizer markets, research on when and how and how much fertilizer to apply and times of year. So perennial crops, perennial grasses, how do they use nitrogen and how can we apply that to be most efficient with them? That's another project we've got. I also work in with here at Montana State University, our barley breeder. She's very active in forages and uh, she does everything from malt barley, feed barley, and now forage lines. And so they're a big part of production as well. Talked about the, the benefits of the perennials, but these annuals fit into renovations of perennials very well. And so we're selecting lines that are better forage, more productive forage, and then also some winter barley lines she's working on, which have an advantage over some of the other winter annuals, just in terms of their phenology and their growth pattern. So weed management, work on that quite a bit. Soils, soil management, and um, i trying to think what other, I should have wrote a list of what projects I have. Well, let me ask you this. What are common questions that you get them from growers and producers in your area? Probably the biggest is I've got a problem in the field. What's going on? The field used to produce, it's not producing, or they'll have, and that's a little more of an open end of what's going on, or they'll have, I've got a portion of the field that is discolored, it's, it's off color, There's, or I've got a bunch of insects in the field, I can see the grasshoppers, I can see something. So most questions I get are some type of problem that's come up, and how do we go about addressing that problem? Second most common is I'm renovating a field. What's the best way to go about doing that? The field isn't producing anymore. I want to get it back to producing. What do we need to to do with that? Anything else that you can think of uh, since we've been talking to add to this conversation today? Uh, Just thinking of of your last question, uh, also species. I get a lot of questions on species. Montana's got a very variable production zones. We have Eastern Montana's very plains, Great Plains oriented, and Western Montana is mountainous, intermountain productions. And they're different precip patterns, different temperatures, different elevations. And so I get a lot of questions about, here's the scenario, I'm gonna reseed this pasture, what do you recommend? And my typical answer is that is what did you have seeded and do you like it? Because it's obviously growing well in your environment. So if you liked what you're doing, let's just set you up for that again. If you didn't like what you're doing here, we, we can come up with a different production set of species that will probably produce a little bit better than, than what you were, were doing. In that. I'm on the road quite a bit, which is a good part of the job. I don't do well in an office. <laughs> so it's nice to be you know on the road quite a bit and meeting people. Montana's a big state. There's portions Northeast. We, we were in Northeastern Montana, went on a tour there, which was just before Christmas. And we started off at nine below in Sydney. And by the time we finished up in Malta, it was windchill was a record setting low of 73 below zero. But people came out, we had good turnout. And so that's, that's what I enjoy 
as much about the job as anything is, is getting out and meeting people. Just a couple more questions here. Sure, sure. I know Montana's also had, you've mentioned a cold, but a lot of snow. So do you mitigate things differently? Do suggestions change based on weather patterns? So we had very substantial drought here, and now we've got fairly good snowpack. And so we'll see how precip spring rains happen. So we're, a lot of our soils are still behind. I haven't looked at the drought monitor here in, in maybe in a few weeks, but a lot of the portions of the state are still slightly drought in scenarios. So if people are irrigated ground, we just read if they have some, some type of a ditch right or a stream right to get that water on. And this is where that water holding capacities in the soils comes in because you may only have a limited amount of water to apply for a one cut irrigated system. Get that water on early so that way you can flood that root zone so you give those plants the best chance they've got to produce in there. And then that goes back to the organic matter. The more organic matter you've got, that's like the sponge in the soils that holds that water back. But drought years, we try to get them to uh, prep up, you know, in terms of forages that they've got, try to do an inventory of pastures that they've got and the health that they're in, and try to recommend scenarios of where to graze, how to graze. A lot of times they'll have native rangelands, which are more sensitive than an improved pasture or hay ground that they've got. So we'll recommend beat those pastures up. They're, those grasses and plants are a little more tolerant of that than the native range associated with that. So it kind of depends on the scenario. And then one part of the state will be in drought and another part will be well above average. Again, thank you to Hayes Goosey, Montana State University Assistant Professor and Extension Forage Specialist. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Ag Queen Podcast with your host, Lori Boyer.